If we could open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 14. The title of this morning's message is Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life. And if we, can, if we think about it, people, including us, at least at one time, we were looking, searching to find a way to heaven, searching to find some promise in the afterlife. <laughs> and I remember being a young person, uh, younger actually, and um, hearing of many people Young people going out west trying to find themselves. They, they come out of their homes, they're 18, and they, they get a little anxious, and they want to fly the coop, and they go out west, or they go, they go to Los Angeles, or they go to New York City. I have no idea why those two places are so popular. But uh, they go out there and try to find themselves, and they end up getting themselves into a lot of trouble. They try to find themselves. They try to find their way, and there's no greater way than Jesus. And we all, before we came to Christ, we were all searching. We were searching for that thing, that something to hang on to. And yet Jesus, all along, was waiting there for us. He is the anchor. He is the author. It's important that we come to him. But people are looking for truth. They want something that's real, something they can be assured of, something, someone they can trust in. But isn't it true that in this world, apart from the Word of God itself, truth is very hard to find? Can anybody attest to that? Truth is very hard to find. Aren't you glad that we have this truth, the truth of God? And if you don't know this to be the truth, then you're missing out on the most important thing in your life because this Word of God is given to us as a love letter from God telling us who he is, who we are, the great gulf that's between us, and the, and the mediator, the one who came to redeem us, to save us, to reconcile us back to the Father, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But to look for truth in this world apart from the Spirit of God and apart from the Word of God is very, very difficult. We have to work hard to find the truth in this life apart from the Word of God. And there's really no place that we should go than the truth of the Word of God. But truth is important. I remember before I was saved, there was a a famous singer that I used to really enjoy listening to, Billy Joel. He wrote a song back in 1978 called Honesty. And the lyrics of that song, which I thought was interesting as I was preparing the message, unfortunately, this song was going through my head because it it, it is important. But but it says, honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard and mostly what I need from you. And honesty, truthfulness, is something that we need today. Uh, In order to be healthy in our relationships, in order for us to have a healthy culture, society, a healthy heart and a mind, it's important to have truth because truth is essential. And today we know there is relativism. Today there is this postmodern theology where people are foolishly making decisions based on their own laws that they make up and their own truth that they have concocted somehow and people want to control their own lives. They think that life is, that real life is being free from restraints and free from accountability, but we know that life is not that at all. Life actually is, is uh, we are accountable to a holy God who's created us. He's created you and I, and so it behooves us to get to know who this one is. 
It behooves us to know who he is. But many people today, their life is characterized by what we read in Psalm 2. Remember a Psalm of David, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and here it is, let us break their bonds, let us break the restraint that is on us in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And what is God's response to that? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. That's not the end of God that I want to to know. And can I get a show of hands? Anybody here? Actually, I hope you don't raise your hand, but a show of hands. Anybody want to see the wrath of God? Do they want to experience the wrath of God? None of us do. We don't want the wrath of God. We want the love and the grace of God. But Jesus said, as many people are trying to find their own way, he had the audacity, because he's God, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. There is only one, and that is Jesus Christ. And you know him, hopefully, here this morning. And for those of you who don't know him, I want to encourage you, whether you hear this live here online or over the radio at some other time down the road, you have to know that He loves you. He paid the price for you. You need to know Jesus Christ. He's your only ticket. He's your only ticket to heaven. It is exclusive, but that exclusivity is open for everyone. For everyone. And happy is the man or woman who finds Christ at an early age. I wish I had found him when I was much earlier in my walk, actually much earlier in my life. It would have saved me in many years of going through uh, being a teenager and, and going through all the troubles that I made for myself. I would have been spared a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. And you would too, because most of us have a testimony, and that testimony is based on the things that we did that ultimately, hopefully, brought us to Christ. The heartache and the pain. Read with me. We're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. And obviously the greatest verse, actually all of them are really good, but the thing we're really zeroing in on is verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But notice what he says. Remember, he is in the upper room with his disciples just hours before he would go to the cross, hours before he would be betrayed by Judas. Now, at this point, Judas has already left the room, and so now Jesus has the other 11 all to himself, and he says this to them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Notice, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And I love Thomas. Reminds me of me. Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip, this reminds me of me as well, He said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to see God the Father? But God the Father is spirit, isn't he? You can't see him in the sense that you can see Jesus. 
But he said, Lord, show us the Father and it suffices us. And Jesus said to him, have I, not, have I been with you so long and yet have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And I love how Jesus finishes this section. Of course, the the narrative goes on, but he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me... The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, notice that, underline that, in my name, that's really critical. (laughs) Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father, notice, the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask anything, underline it again, in my name, I will do it. I will do it. And so Judas has already left the room. We know that Jesus had his last Passover meal up there with the disciples. He washed their feet, including Judas's. And now Judas leaves, and Jesus shares this, really chapters 14 through 17. Uh, Some have called this the upper room discourse, where Jesus begins to prepare his, his disciples for his departure. It would be just hours from then that Jesus would go to the cross, and he would... He would be put in the grave, he would die on the cross, be put in the grave, would rise again the third day, and thankfully for them, he would be seen for 40 days after that. And then he ascended from the Mount of Olives, from Bethany, into a cloud, and then the disciples, for another 10 days, would wait for the promise of the Father that would come on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God would come down upon the believers Already having been filled with this earth, uh, having the Spirit of God indwelling them, but now coming upon them with great power, with great power, emboldening them, giving them the strength they need, the boldness to live the life now. In fact, next week we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit in the believers, in the church, and this is really the beginning of it as we, as we continue on in verse 14. But let's go back and look at verse 1 again. Because notice what Jesus said to him, said to them. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This idea of troubled means to be agitated or restless. It's like when you take, uh, when you go up to a, uh, when you're on the shore, uh, the Gulf of Mexico or something like that, and you go out there and you start stirring up the sand. It makes a, it's cloudy, it, it, it's turbid, the water is muddy by you stirring it up. That's the idea behind it. You're agitated, you're restless. And the reason Jesus said this was because of what happened in the last part of chapter 13. Look with me what happened in, uh, in that area of the Scripture. Go back and look at John. Um, actually, that should be John, not Luke 13. Sorry, that's a typo. <laughs> John 13, 33. Just look back a little bit. What did Jesus say to his disciples there in that upper room? He says, little children, it shall, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And so Jesus spoke these same words to the unbelieving Jews in John 7, in verse 32. Let me just read it to you. But Jesus said this to the Pharisees and the chief priests. 
It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning, concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him, and then Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I will go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And so Jesus even spoke this to those who were his antagonists, those who did not believe in him. But notice in verse 36 of John 13, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. This is familiar words that Peter and the men there in the room are remembering that he told unbelievers. And so now they're hearing it themselves. And do you think that's going to rattle them a little bit? Because they really didn't comprehend Jesus' purpose quite yet. It was still a little foggy in their head. They were troubled. They were agitated. They were stirred up because what are you saying? Jesus, what are you saying? And that's why Peter would say, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus is where I'm going. You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus said to him, will you lay down your life for my sake, Peter? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So I think Peter and the other guys had something to be a little uptight about, don't you? And what were some of those things that Jesus spoke? While he was with them at that meal, he told them that he would be leaving them and that where he was going, they couldn't come yet. He also told them that one of them was a devil. Boy, doesn't that bring a introspection upon a soul? Toward the point where even John, his beloved disciple, would look at him as he leaned upon Jesus' breast and said, Lord, who is it? Who is it, Lord? And he also told them that Peter would deny him three times. They had every reason to be a little agitated, as we would as well. But Peter denied Jesus, but he didn't betray him like Judas did. There's a big difference between denying and betraying. To deny somebody is to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone, but to betray someone is entirely different. That means to deliver up, to hand somebody over, and that's what Judas did. That's what Judas did. And yet, in lieu of these things, Jesus encourages Peter and the others not to be troubled in heart. You know, I believe that we worry about way too many things. I find myself worrying about way too many things. But the majority of the things that we worry about, they never actually come to fruition. Have you ever noticed that? We do a lot of worrying, but a lot of times, most of the things, the vast majority, in fact, some studies have even said over 87, 97% of the things that we worry about never actually come to fruition. So what is it? It's wasted time, time that we could have been using for something else, time that we could have been contemplating, meditating on the Word of God, things that we could have been thinking about. Well, how about dwelling on the promises of God? This chapter is, has got some in it. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but here are a few of them that we're going to find just in this chapter alone. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. That's encouraging. That means that there's a purpose in him preparing it, that he would come for the church and bring us to his Father's house. That's the second thing. The third thing is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We learn a lot about that. 
And those who believe in him would do greater works than even that he did, which sounds astounding to me, but through the Spirit of God, this is possible. And also, whatever we would ask in his name, he would do it. And finally, that the Holy Spirit would indwell us, believers. And Jesus said to them in verse 1 there, You believe in God, believe also in me. Notice that Jesus' comment here is of oneness and of equality. In Philippians, we know that what it says, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, God has also highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and given him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I like that, don't you? Every knee will bow. But believing in the Father and believing in Jesus are one and the same. We know that in the Word of God it tells us this. Jesus and God the Father are equal. The Holy Spirit are equal. And that's where we get this term, the Trinity. We know that even in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it tells us in verse 14 that this Word, this Logos, in the Greek is what it is, became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that Logos? Jesus. That's who he is. He's equal with God. In John, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you following Jesus this morning? Have you been following Jesus? And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Notice that. They'll never perish eternally. They'll always be with him. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What a great, another great promise, that no matter how difficult things get, no matter what the devil does, no matter what happens in your life, no one, nothing in created can snatch you out of the hand of God. If you are in him, you are secure as anything and anyone can, can make. It's more secure than anything else. That is wonderful assurance. When we sing that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You have, you can have that blessed assurance. There's no need to walk around with a cloud over your head, wondering. Make your calling and election sure today. Don't allow the, your, your thoughts and your doubts to cloud in around those things. You are one. And Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me are, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you notice? We're one. In, John, in Jesus' high priestly prayer recorded for us in John 17, Jesus said this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, speaking of the disciples, and us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be also one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, which I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Love that. 
I love the unity that we have as believers. To be one with God, in spite of our differences, in spite of politics, it ought to be that way. But you can't have the Father without Jesus. I've heard it said, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of people who believed in God that are in hell today. They believed in God, but they haven't believed in Jesus Christ because Jesus is God's salvation. He is the one that we have to believe in. In John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Notice, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. So you can't just say, well, I believe in God and I'm good. No, there's a lot of people who believe in God. The devils believe in God. And they are opposed to him. They hate him. And they know very well their, their doom that's coming. And isn't, that, isn't that insanity? How is it that an angel that is created, a created being, can look at its creator and they know better than we do? And yet they can say, no thanks. That is the ultimate in lunacy. And they followed one of the most powerful angels. All it took was one, Lucifer, to say, I will rise above. I will do this. I, I, I. Oh, my. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you can't have one without Jesus. It all stems upon Jesus. What is your attitude toward Jesus? Most of, most of us here are well-fed. We've had many years of being well-fed, but I need to tell you again that you need to make sure that that is your foundation, that Jesus Christ is the one that you're living by, not by any other creed or no, no other um, YouTube superstar. No, you need to know the Word of God. You need to know Jesus Christ. He is the only one. In John 5, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so when Jesus says in this chapter that he's the way, the truth, and the life, he means there's no other way to get entrance into heaven without believing in him. He is the door. There is no admittance in heaven apart from Christ have you received Jesus into your heart? Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of salvation that only the blood of Jesus Christ can atone for? That is a prerequisite to being saved. You have to know that you're a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I knew from the moment I was old enough to understand, even before I was able to understand what sin was, I was sinning. I was selfish. All I thought about was myself and my needs. And I stole, and I cried, and I pulled, and I grabbed things out of people's hands. Remember, even a baby can do that. Because why? Is it because they've learned something from their parents? No. They will learn from their parents as time goes on, unfortunately, but they're born with that nature. And you and I need a Savior. We need the Savior, not just a Savior. There's only one Savior, do you understand? The world says, oh, there's many saviors. No, there's one. There is one. Buddha and Allah, they are not a savior. There is only one savior, the savior, Jesus Christ. 
And we have to take that to the bank. We have to make that deposit in our heart and say, Lord, I believe that with all of my heart and nothing is going to chase me away from that. Don't let anything chase you away from the truth because Jesus is the way, the truth. And he said, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. You see, this current tent, this current body that we have, that we live in, and the earth that we currently occupy for a season, it is temporary. It is temporary. We have a habitation yet ahead of us that is not temporal but eternal. The Bible tells us that even concerning our body, what does it tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation. Are you waiting for that? I'm looking forward to the rapture of the church when this old, nasty, ugly body is going to be changed in the twinkling of... Can anybody relate to that, a nasty, ugly body? All the women are saying, I reject that in Jesus' name. But most of the guys over 50 are like, amen, brother. Yeah, this, this nasty, ugly body is going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, and we're going to be caught up to meet with him. All right? That is... So this is temporal. And even the earth that we live in is temporal. What does it tell us in Hebrews? It says in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And what is he referring to? I think it goes way beyond the millennial reign of Christ, because that's a thousand years too. And guess what? That's temporal as well, because this current heavens and earth are going to pass away. So even this current earth, in Revelation 21, it tells us that this current heavens and earth are going to dissolve with fervent heat, and God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth And he is going to bring new Jerusalem down from heaven that he's been preparing. He went to a place. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He's preparing new Jerusalem for us so that when he returns or at the end of the thousand-year reign, he is going to dissolve everything and he's going to build it new again and he's going to bring that city down from heaven and we will be in new bodies and that will be our eternal state. So everything here is temporal. So why hold on to it so tightly? Why hold on to it so tightly? Notice he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Again, another precious promise that you can, tank to, you can take it to the bank and you can bet on it with all you have. Because before Jesus could go to heaven and prepare a place for us, he first has to ascend into heaven. And Jesus did ascend into heaven 40 days after his resurrection and after his death. It tells us in Acts chapter 1. It says, The former account, O Theophilus, of all I made of all that Jesus both began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, and he, through the Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Notice, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it tells us in that first chapter 2, 
in, that, in, in chapter one, excuse me, in verse nine, it says, now when he had said these things, what did he do? While they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, these two angels says, why do you stand here gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up in heaven will also come in like manner. And doesn't it tell us in Zechariah that the way Jesus ascended to heaven, he's also coming down at the same place? In Zechariah 14, verse 4, it tells us. It says, in that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, in his second coming to the earth, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. It's going to come to pass exactly as he said it is. Because he's never lied to us. And this promise of him preparing a place for us, that where he is, we might also be is as sure as anything that we can imagine. He makes it very plain, and if it were not so, he would have told us. He tells us the truth because he cannot lie. He cannot lie because he is omniscient. See, we lie because we don't know all the facts. We don't know everything, and so we have to make up things to justify our position. But listen, when you're all-knowing and you're omniscient, there's no need to lie. There's no need. You can just say it, and this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. This is what's happened, and this is what's going to happen. End of topic. And it will come to pass. Only God is omniscient. He's the only one who's omnipotent. He's the only one who is omnipresent. He can say it, and it will happen. And there's no reason for him to lie to us. He ascended into heaven, and he had a different body, and he was able to ascend into heaven. It tells us, um, in Corinthians, fifty. Now this I say, Paul says, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In Luke's gospel, behold, my hands and my feet, as he stood before his disciples on that very day that he was that he rose from the grave he said it is me see that it is me handle me and see me a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have jesus had a celestial body and was therefore able to ascend to the father and he's preparing a place for us and at the rapture we will receive that very same body a body that can withstand eternity that can withstand being in the very presence of God the Father who is spirit. Notice in verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Notice his words, I will come again and receive you unto myself. This is another promise of God. And what does it tell us in Numbers 23? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The answer is, he will. And Jesus is here speaking of the rapture. I will come and I will receive you unto myself. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven. He's going to receive us in the clouds. We're going to meet him. The dead in Christ will rise, and then we which are alive and remain will be changed. We'll meet him in the clouds, and we will be with him in that new Jerusalem that he's preparing for us, I believe. And where I go, verse 4, you know, and the way you know. 
And Thomas, I'm thankful for Thomas because there's always somebody in the room who wants to ask a question, but they don't. And Thomas says, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And again, very comforting. For those of us who don't have it all together, guess what? The disciples didn't have it all together either, so you're in good company. They may have been all thinking of this, but Thomas had the guts to say what they were all thinking. And it gives credence to that old adage, which we all know, and that is, the only dumb question is the question that no one asks. Don't let pride get in your way from asking questions. And Thomas was like, you know what, I'm just going to lay it out there. I'm just going to, all the other guys can laugh at me, but Lord, where are you going? And how do we get there? And Jesus said to him, and here's the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most significant verses in all of the Bible because it's exclusive, but isn't it open to everyone who believes in Christ? That, that promise is open to every single one. And it's also the, the sixth of the seventh I am statements that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. We know them. We've been looking at them as we've been going through, the, uh, going through the Gospel of John, but notice the sixth one, I am the way. And Jesus is the way. Isn't it interesting that there are many religions in the world? There's even one called the way ministry, which is filled with false doctrine. There are many other religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. They all claim to have... To, to, to have a passage to the other side or to heaven. But the Bible says that there is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. See, everybody wants to get to heaven. They want to get there on their own rules. They want to get there on their own works, but that's just not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Heaven's entrance is a narrow gate, and believe me, it's a difficult way. If, somebody, if some evangelist has said, come to Christ and all your problems will be solved, he's not telling you the truth. He's not telling you the truth. In fact, it is a, a difficult way. And narrow is the gate. Isn't that funny? You'd think it'd be the other way around. But it's not. It's a narrow way. And difficult is the way to life. And why? Because we live in enemy territory. All around us, the, there's so much deception in the world that is constantly, constantly fighting against the truth. Have you noticed that? Whatever the truth is, there is going to be a monumental attack on that truth. And people have been hammering on Jesus Christ and his word ever since he came into being. And they continue. Some of the most famous universities, the, the greatest universities in the world are the most godless pieces of refuse that there is. And I've been to some of those. I've been to a couple of those schools, and I can say that, so don't be offended if you've gone to those schools as well. But they didn't teach me about Jesus Christ. In fact, they tried to get me to, to learn anything else but Jesus Christ, to be self-confident, to build myself, to believe in other things, to follow the crowd, you know, and all these other things. But listen, there's only one way, and it is narrow, and it is difficult. In fact, what does it tell us in Acts chapter 14? 
Concerning Paul and Barnabas, when they came to the town of Derbe, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, notice, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying to them, and notice this, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Yes, that's the part that the evangelists don't like to tell you about. Oh, you're, all your problems will go away, all your bills will be paid, and everything will be just great. Now, you know what? Sometimes, yes, you can be saved and have the joy of salvation, but then the battle really begins. Then life really begins to come front and center. And then you realize, oh my goodness, I was a dead soldier all this time, and now for the first time, I realize there is a real battle, and it's not a physical battle. It can manifest itself in physical ways, but it is a spiritual battle that if we are unaware of it, we are going to be bamboozled, and we are going to be unprepared for what is coming and for what the life we're living right now. We know that it is a narrow way. It is very difficult. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. And we are, this life is full of struggles and battles, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate in Matthew 7, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? To life? No, to destructions. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And yet none of the world's religions except Christianity answers the question or the dilemma concerning sin. Yes, we are all sinners from birth. It tells us in Psalm 51, Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul tells the Romans, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Aren't you glad you came to church today? All this good news. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited because I learned that I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. Yes, we were all born sinners, and so was I. Ah, but we have a glorious future. Amen? Amen. We have a glorious future. And, and John the Apostle even includes himself in this whole ordeal. In John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we, John including himself, says, If we have no sin, if we, don't have a sin, if we say that we don't have a sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But notice, if we confess our sins, those individual acts of sin, he, Jesus, is faithful not only to forgive us, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's another promise. Memorize that promise. Memorize that promise. So if we are sinners from the womb, then we can, uh, then we, um, then how can we make it to heaven and not spend an eternity in hell? We know that we have to believe in God's only means of salvation, and that's what this whole gospel is about. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, those are very clear statements. He's literally saying, I am the only way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life. Anything that you search beyond that is futility. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's not only way, but he's also the truth. This means that not only is he the embodiment of truth, but also the things that he says are true. Do you follow me? He's not only truth itself, but the things that he says, the things that he does are truth as well. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe it? If you do, are you living your life according to it? 
We live in a world of deception, folks, and we all need to be all in with Jesus and trust him and his word. He is the truth. I remember one time I was with my grandfather back in Pine Island, Florida, when I was a young guy, and I was looking for something. It was right there in front of me, and my grandfather said, you know what? If it had been a snake, it would have bitten you. And he was joking with me, and I thought to myself, wow, it was right there in front of my eyes all this time, and I didn't see it. Well, a very similar thing happened to Pontius Pilate, because in John chapter 18, as Jesus was standing and being questioned by Pontius Pilate, Pilate said to him, are you the king then? Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? And Jesus answered and says, you rightly said that I am a king. You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said something amazing. What is truth? What is truth? Very obvious thing. And yet the truth, if it had been a snake, it would have bitten him, as my grandfather said, because the very truth was embodied in front of Pilate, and he didn't know it. But he had the integrity, at least, whatever integrity he had, to say, you know what, I find no fault in this man. He was determined to let him go. And yet truth was standing before him. And truth is standing before a lot of people today, and they refuse, not because they can't understand, it's that they won't. It's a matter of the heart. It's not about education. You can educate somebody with all the truth, but they've got to believe it. Aren't you glad that we have have the Spirit of God in us that's, that's confirming these things to us? As we read it, we're like, this is truth, and you know what? Nobody can take this away. Do you feel like that, Christian? Do you know that you, the truths and the promises that God has given to you, no one can take them away from you? No one can take them away from you, and don't let anybody try. You stand on that truth, and you stand on that word of God, and you hold fast to it, and don't let anybody nudge you, because you are right, and they are wrong. And can I say that just be out of my own, some kind of uh, personal bravado? No, no, no bravado of my own because I believe this. And Jesus has been faithful every single moment, every single day. He has been faithful. He will never cease to be faithful or he'll never cease to be unfaithful. He'll always be faithful. You can trust him. And Jesus not only is the way and the the truth, but he's also the life. There is no life outside of Jesus because he is the author of it. To desire a life apart from the creator is foolishness. What does it tell us in John chapter 1 verse 4? In him, in Christ, in this word of God was life, and the life was the light of men. What did he tell Martha in John chapter 11? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And who believes in me, though he may die, he will live for eternity. He will have everlasting life if he believes in me. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you will live an everlasting death. Yes, everlasting torment. Hell is very real. And there's only two options on the table. There's only two doors. The door is narrow. You have to believe in Christ. Do you believe in Christ? Do you really believe in him? Because if I really do believe in him, it's going to change my life. 
If I've got no evidence in my life that there's changes, that God is working in me, this righteousness and the spirit of God indwelling me, convicting me of my own sin and giving me the strength and the power and the boldness to go out into a world that needs to know, if that is not happening, I've got every reason to question whether I even know him or not, whether I'm really saved or not. You must know. You must know and know it. I need to know it. There is no way that I could stand up here and talk to you unless I was hook, line, and sinker. Because if I wasn't hook, line, and sinker, somebody should take my place. Because that is the truth. That is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and he is also the life. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will go... And, and we'll go in and out and find pasture. And the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, notice, that they may have life and that they might have it life more abundantly. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And notice, no man comes to the Father except through me. Yes, all roads do not lead to God, and yet they do. All roads do not lead to God, and yet they do. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's only one way through Christ. For a believer to stand in his presence, there's only one way. It's Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way. But yet, all these other roads that have been purporting to give you some kind of satisfaction or some kind of spiritual help, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, you name it, the list is long. Anything other than Jesus Christ, all those other roads are going to lead to Christ because the Bible tells us, what does it tell us? <laughs> at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and that's at the great white throne judgment. All roads are going to ultimately lead to God. But if you're a believer, you won't be bowing your knee and saying this to God and acknowledging his deity, acknowledging his power. You've already done that, and you're in the Beloved but there will be those who will stand before him and they will, they will bow their knee. The atheists, the politicians, the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, every man and woman who has rejected Christ will bow, they will bow their knee to Christ before he sends them to an eternity of condemnation, they will bow their knee and say that he is Christ, that he is Lord of all. And do you think that pleases the Lord? He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He does not. He'd much rather have you come to him. And why is it so hard? Why are you resisting? Why are you struggling and, and, and fussing and fighting and kicking and spitting and biting? Why, are you, why do you continue to be like that proverbial dog that just digs in his heels while his owner is trying to drag him? Like I've seen that lady dragging a dog in Florida. And she's trying, she's this little lady, she's got this huge dog on a leash and the dog is really taking her for a walk, not the other way around. And the dog doesn't want to go and this 85-pound 85, 85 lady is not going to move that 120-pound dog. He's going to dictate where they go. Why do we dig in our heels? 
Jesus said, if you had known me, verse 7, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And this is what the Logos is. This is the word of God is Jesus, the Logos. And when we think of the word logo, you've heard me say this before, a logo means something. It stands for the purpose, the idea, the vision, the character. It stands for something, brand recognition. We all look around and we see a logo and it means something to us. We know whether that company is good or bad or indifferent. We know whether they're a company of quality, of integrity or not. And Jesus is saying, I am the word of God. That means he is the logo. He represents God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And Jesus represents God the Father very perfectly. And so Philip says, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. But see, God is a spirit. And we cannot see him with this, in this body. We are not able to. In fact, Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses wanted to see God the Father. And God spoke to him, and he says, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord says, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be that while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by, and then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. The glory of God in this body would disintegrate us. You cannot see God as spirit face-to-face in this, in this tent. That's why we need a new tent. That's why we need to be, when we are raptured, we'll have a body that will be able to stand before God and not fall to pieces because of the brightness. I don't know about you, doesn't that just lift you? To think of that, 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 that is where our worship can begin is to think about that. Can you imagine being in the presence of somebody so pure and so holy, so loving? You know, it, it's almost like the dread. There's so much dread, but yet on the, the same side, there's this love and, and, and grace and forgiveness, and it's just completely overwhelming. It's like, how can you even imagine that? And to be able to stand there, I mean, it just almost makes your knees start knocking together before it even happens. That is who he is. Let your heart be carried away with that. Man, it just gives me goosebumps to think that's the reality of who Jesus is and that's who the one that we are going to see. We're going to see God the Father. We're going to see the Son. And Jesus said to him, to Philip, verse 9, I've been, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In John 1.18 it says, No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, Jesus says to Philip, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Yes, the Trinity Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This word Trinity, many of you know this. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's everywhere. We're not going to go through all of these, but in the beginning of the very first few words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. God is Elohim. It's a plural noun, but yet it's one God. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Who is he speaking to? Who is he speaking when he says our and our likeness? Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the Son and the Holy Spirit that are one with him. God in three persons, but one God 
one God. Isaiah says in verse chapter 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. I thought there's only one God. Yes, there is, but they're all one. Thus says the Lord, thus says Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Jehovah of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there's no other. Either God's got a, a problem or he's very comfortable with who he is. I would go with the latter. <laughs> he's very comfortable with who he is. He knows who he is. And then verse 12, it says, Most assuredly, Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. This seems like a long shot, doesn't it? When you think of all that Jesus has done, the many miracles that he did, but yet when he, when he ascended into heaven, he says, I must go to the Father because then I can send the Spirit of God unto you. See, through the Spirit, you and I have the capability now to reach many people. A, 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 tel, you know, a pastor or a, a preacher can preach to a, a stadium full of people and the Spirit of God empowering him can reach those people. It happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter, 3,000 people, unsaved, he speaks a word a very short time, and 3,000 people got saved. The Spirit of God indwelling them, it's done. And in, the, in that capacity, we have the ability to do even greater things than Jesus did while he was on the earth. Through the Spirit of God, that's what he meant by that. There's now there's no limitation. Not that there was when Jesus was here either, but he says, you know what, my Spirit is omnipresent. And he can do many things. That's why you can pray right now for somebody overseas and that person can be influenced by your prayer, by God's will being done when we ask it in his name. In fact, that's what we get into next. Notice what in verse 13. He says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And notice here, we'll end with this verse. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I had you underline that, remember? In my name. Such a... Three words that are so incredibly important. Because what would happen if Jesus would have said, if you ask anything, I will do it. I remember my daughter. If she's here this morning, she's going to be cringing. Because whenever I bring up her name, she's like, oh, what are you going to say? But this is kind of cute because when she was little, I remember, she said, Daddy, if I pray for a 200-pound chocolate bar, will Jesus give it to me? And I said, probably not, honey. He could. I mean, he could. He could produce the chocolate bar. But what would it do to her? She'd be in the bathroom sick. Because she would, like all of us, right? We're all chocolate junkies. We'd eat so much chocolate that we'd get sick to our stomach. So he wouldn't give that to her. Probably not. Unless he gave her the, the grace to handle it. But why? But, but why? Is there, is there some kind of eternal? And again, she was young and she didn't know. And I, I love the question because I've asked it myself. Lord, if I ask something in your name, will you give it to me? Well, it depends, Rob. What's your heart attitude in it? Do you want to just consume it on your own lust? Or is it, is it, is it part of my plan for your life? Is it part of the kingdom? Are you, are you, what are you going to do with that thing that you're asking me for, Mr. Kellogg? Is it going to be for your own selfish motivation or is it going to be for my kingdom? Well, if it's for your own selfish motivation, I'm not obligated to do that. 
In fact, I might not. And God help you if he gives it to you. And sometimes he might allow something like that to really show you where you're at. And that's the thing. I don't always want what I ask for. <laughs> I, want, I want what he wants for me. That's why in my name is so critical. When you ask in my name, I'm not asking with my own selfish motivation. I'm asking, Lord, if it, if it benefits your kingdom somehow. And that's why when we ask for, for, for God to give us his Holy Spirit to come upon us, to empower us in the world that we live in today, he's not going to say no. Receive it. You ask, he wants to give it to you. Now walk in such a way where you can receive that and be effective for him because he doesn't, he doesn't just do it just because it's fun to do. No, he gives it because he has a purpose in baptizing you with the Spirit of God. There's a purpose behind it. And what is that purpose? To make me feel good? To make me go in front of the cameras and have them do a big write-up on the paper on me? You know, pastor speaks and millions show up. No, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. It's about Jesus. He wants to get that message across. So there's a purpose behind these things. So when we pray in his name, that's really critical. So if you're doing something in the name of the Lord, it had better be something that he has willed for us to do or has empowered us by the Spirit, motivated by him and not propped up by the flesh. Back in 1970, you all, most of you, I was not even one years old when this happened. But Janis Joplin wrote a song in 1970. It was called Mercedes Benz. And again, I was just months old when this was recorded. And the words to this song is interesting because this is the way a lot of people think of ask something in my name or ask something and I'll give it to you. They forget in my name. In my name is very important because she said, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive portions. I must make amends. Work hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing, dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I'll wait for, for delivery each day until three. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a colored television? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me and buy the next round. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Now, to her credit, Janis Joplin, I believe, uh, if, if, if this is correct, she, this is really a slam against consumerism, so I'll give her that. But there are people who actually think that. If I, if I, if I pray something, God will give it to me, and they take this promise out of context. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, well, is it in his name that he buys me a Mercedes-Benz? Is it in his will to buy another round? Probably not. Because my heart usually is not right in those situations. I just want to waste it on myself. But what if I say, Lord, I want to, I want to bless somebody else. Lord, would you bless somebody? This person doesn't have a car. This person's health is... Is, is not doing so good. Lord, I want to pray for that. Lord, I want more money so that I can give. And then he gives you a really good job. And then he lets you, he gives you the ability to send a lot more money around the world to do things with, uh, to things in the church, whatever it may be. And he's answering your prayer because your heart is right. You're not asking for a Mercedes Benz. You're not asking for a, a, a house on the lake. Now, he may give you those things and praise God if he does. Maybe he can give me a ride in your Benz. Give me a ride in your Mercedes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not really. But what's the motivation of my heart? Do I really want those things? If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Are we asking anything in Jesus' name? Are we only asking him in prayer the things that can happen, the things that we might even be able to accomplish in ourselves? Have you stopped asking for the and praying for the impossible things that are just way out of your league? Folks, let me suggest to you that neither one of those is difficult for the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the simple things. But don't forget to pray for the things that just seem absurd, but that are right. Pray for the things that are absurd, that there's no way that you can do it. You don't have any way of knowing how it could be done on this earth. Why not pray for it nonetheless? Because he has done things like that, and he can do things like that. Do you believe that? He has done things. He's come at it with a different curve. Have you noticed that? And I, I've been old enough now to see where things have been going a certain way, and I'm like, there is just no way that this is going to change. And all of a sudden, something changes, something simple, and it changes everything. And you're like, I did not see that coming. Completely blindsided that that could have happened. So why not pray for the big things, folks? Do we serve a small, impotent God? Or do we serve the one who created all things? You have to make that decision. I would encourage you to pray for the impossible. Storm heaven's gates with prayers that are way beyond us, way beyond our understanding and ability. And you will honor God when you do, according to his will, in his name. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, thank you that you've given us the way, that you've shown us the way, that you've already been on that way before us, Lord. As a good shepherd, you've already paved the way for us. You've gone and you've, you've shown us, and you are, you are there ahead of us, Lord. As the good shepherd, you have gone before us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you're the way, and Lord, that you're the only truth. Lord, there's no other truth apart from you. You are the truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, you're the life. You're the only life. Thank you for giving us everlasting life, Lord. I pray that everyone in earshot of this message today would understand that and grab a hold of you and allow you to transform their life, God. Get a hold of us again. Lord, baptize us. As we get into the rest of this chapter next week, Lord, would you? we don't want to wait. We want you to come today, Lord. Fill us. For this week, for instances, the things that we're going to encounter this week, people, groups of people, whatever it may be, baptize us, Lord, and help us to be truthful. Help us to be honest and upright, even when it hurts, even when everyone abandons us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.